Hi, this is Louis Canio. Welcome to the Doctor and Dad podcast. This fast-paced weekly podcast delves into the latest scientific findings on how we can all live longer and better lives. I'm the dad, and my daughter, Nicole, is a family medicine doc who trained at the renowned Cleveland Clinic. We hope you enjoy this short, informative show, and please be sure to visit thedoctorandad.com. Uh, and by the way, the doctor is abbreviated in that. So it's T-H-E-D-R-A-N-D-D-A-D.com for the show notes um, and other resources to help you learn about extending your health span. Within the notes, you'll find links to a bunch of stuff we discussed. So be sure to check it out. And thanks for listening. Hi, doctor. Hi, dad. So we're talking today about uh, exercise, and, but not about the effect of exercise on the body, but more its effect on the mind. So does it help with depression, mood, what have you? So I got to ask you, you've always been into physical activity. What's your, what's your personal experience? Does exercise boost your mood? Um, yeah, I think without a doubt, it makes me feel better. And the days that I exercise, I generally feel better than the days that I don't. Um, and I don't know if it's more that or more that when I don't exercise, I feel worse. It's always hard to um, figure yeah. out if it's the exercise that's making you feel better or not exercising that's making you feel worse. But either way, it's a positive, it's definitely a po- has a positive impact on yeah, me and if- personally. I think if exercise is kind of your habit routine, those days when you don't, is almost this guilt, I feel. Right. Yep, absolutely. Which <laughs> so that's what it. I, that's what's tough too, because you don't want it to be something where it causes, you know, negative emotion right. if you have to miss a day, but it's a balance. Yeah. Of all the things you have to stress about, not exercising is something, or exercising is not not something you should add to that list right. necessarily. Now you've talked previously about how often you're dealing with, with psychological issues within your practice with your, with your patients. Do you discuss exercise as, you know, a cure? Um, yeah. Well, maybe not as a, like, Oh, this is going to fix you. Um, but I always talk to patients about if they are dealing with, you know, whether it's depression or anxiety, um, and some, sometimes people end up needing medications to help with that. But I always say, you know, the medication by itself won't make you, you know, feel your absolute best. It's a, it's the medication to correct something if you need it. But then also I always talk about um, um, like diet, nutrition, exercise, and sleep. Because if, you know, one of those things mm-hmm. is off, then you're just not going to be at your optimal place as far as mood goes so I say medications will help one piece of it but then making sure that you're sleeping well and eating well and exercising Um, and then I will usually kind of just tell them that there are there's really great data that shows how much um, physical activity can improve your mood Um, and there's even studies that I've read about how the positive effect of exercise on someone who is struggling with depression or anxiety um, is close to the positive effect of some of the medications we use. Um, So it's definitely a topic that I have with pretty much anyone who I see with mental health issues. Exactly. Exactly. But, uh, and on the other hand, I've read stuff that indicates 
that uh, some of the medication effectiveness is, is not a whole lot higher than placebo effectiveness. Um, so that, you know, just the, the, just the idea of taking a, a pill to affect, you know, your, your, your psychological balance, so to speak, uh, is, ha- has a pretty profound effect. Yeah, the plus- there's definitely a placebo effect, but for like SSRI type medications for depression, anxiety, there is all, there's great evidence that it's not just um, yeah. placebo effect there, but that the placebo effect comes into play with all sorts of medications and, you know, depression and anxiety wouldn't be excluded in that, but there is good evidence that it also does other things. Yeah. And, and not to, not to go off on a tangent, which we often do, there's, there was just a study done and you know, work for it um, around the, the fact that the placebo is real. In other words, right. biological changes happen. Right. People take a sugar pill, let's say, mm-hmm. that mimic to some extent the biological changes that happen when someone takes an actual medicine. Right, which is crazy. So it's not just like your mind is thinking it's working, your body's actually making something work. So, so uh, you know, testament again to the mind-body connection yeah. and the power yeah. of that. So let's get into the study because, as, as you mentioned, uh, lots of studies being done on the effect of, of exercise and, and mood and uh, depression, what have you. This one, um, the, 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 the title is an assessment of bidirectional relationships between physical activity and depression among adults. And they utilized a two-sample Mendelian randomization study. So that is a mouthful. I get the bi-directional relationship piece. So they're, they're studying um, both possible directions of causality between physical activity and depression. In other words, does physical activity affect depression and does depression affect physical activity, presumably rates. Help me with this Mendelian randomization study. Just what? what is it? What is it? Yes. So it's a really interesting thing. So we talked before about um, how the best studies for the best data um, are the randomized control trials where you're actually treating someone with something and treating another group without it and, um, you know, measuring things and controlling all the other outside variables. And that's how you know that you're cutting out a lot of the, um, different types of biases that you can sometimes see to make sure that your results really are the result of what, what you you're doing. But that is difficult, time consuming, kind of all the stuff we talked about before. It's also hard to do any study where you think the outcome could be harm because you can't test human subjects on something you think is going to harm them. Um, so we use a lot of the epidemiological studies or, you know, just surveys and that sort of thing. Right. So what, what have we observed either looking forward, what, what happens, you know, to this group of people or what happened in the past to this group of people with certain exposures. Um, The problem with that is that there's different biases because you're working with people's um, recollection of things and there's confounding factors. So it just makes it so that you aren't able to, ascertain as much information on the causality of anything. You can associate something, but you can't prove the cause. 
So this is a way to get a little bit closer to those randomized control trials while using observational studies. So it, it takes these um, epidemiological studies and incorporates genetic information into them to investigate you know, the same kind of stuff, potential risk factors for certain diseases or outcomes. Um, so, for example, a prospective cohort study would, you know, look in the future, you know, with the study participants as to whether an outcome of interest is more common in people with a certain gene than it is without it. So you actually identify the genes that you're, you think play a role in the risk yeah. factor and you're right. able to monitor the people who have that gene and the people who don't have that gene, because the idea is that the gene you're looking at relates to the risk factor that you think is going to affect the outcome of the study. Exactly. Um, exactly. So it, it just makes, it gives you a better set of data and it, it enables you to kind of randomize everything a lot better. So, and, and why do that? Why go that step? And that's just because it, it limits the confounding bias. It eliminates um, most of the reverse causality, which is what we worry about with a lot of studies that did the outcome affect the exposure or did the exposure affect, affect the, outcome? the outcome? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So maybe an example you, t you tell me is, uh, let's say we're, we're, we we want to study the, uh, the, uh, cause effect of high cholesterol and high and instead so instead of using measures of cholesterol level and then studying against heart attacks we say okay we know these genetic markers mean you're you're you're, you're likely to have higher cholesterol levels so that's that's that we'll we'll look at and we'll look yeah. at um, the outcome being heart attacks related to those genetic markers, not necessarily related to that, to that thing that we actually think causes it. Right. Yep. So you look at the genes for it and say, did these people have more heart attacks, the ones who had these certain types of genes compared to the ones who don't? Yep. And then you can try to um, infer more information from there. So it just gives, I guess it makes, it improves the validity of these studies um, and makes the data um, a little bit more real. Yep. And, and so they call it Mendelian. I did some research on this um, after Gregor Mendel. So if, if uh, listening, think back to their, I guess, high school biology, um, you may remember he was a European scientist. He lived in the mid 1800s uh, and he's really regarded as the, the father of the science of genetics. Uh, that we're obviously we hear so much about today, you know, 23andMe and, and what have you. Yeah. Uh, and, and he did these famous pea plant experiments where he really discovered the rules of, of heredity. So it's amazing yep. that we go back, how long was that? Over, well, pushing 200 years ago now, maybe 170, 580 years ago, two experiments he was doing, extrapolated all the way forward. And, uh, we're still talking about, you know, the the, uh, the effects of some of that science that was created back then. Yep. Cool. So uh, the question was, does physical activity have a potential causal role in reducing the risk of depression? 
you know, we think it we think it does. We see we've seen uh, certainly uh, like you said epidemiological logical studies that have indicated that obviously this is an important question because there there is evidence that shows that uh, physical activity is associated with reduced risk for depression and, and depression um, and, and in its various forms is a very large and growing problem in, in the U.S. And again, you indicate that a sizable uh, percentage of uh, the, the patients you see have depression either, either as a primary kind of mm -hmm. problem or, or as a secondary right. relationship to yep. it. Yep. So, so really important um, because, um, you know, because it presumably has all these other beneficial aspects to it mm -hmm. so if it also helps move depression that's that's awesome awesome and again it's it's bi-directional does is there is there one way or the other and what they found um was that there um there is um a causal connection between higher levels of physical activity and um used chance of major depression so we got to kind of define some terms there. They're not looking at just, oh, I'm a, I'm a little bit down today. These are, mm -hmm. these, these are folks with, with major depression. Um, and major depression, um, ma major depressive disorder um, is kind of like more of a textbook diagnosis. So you have to meet certain criteria um, to be diagnosed with major depression. Um, and then there's other varying degrees of depression, like dysthymia, where you don't quite meet the quote unquote, major depressive disorder, but you're down and you meet some of the criteria. So I think that this is looking at those um, with who meet the, the, all the criteria to be diagnosed with major depressive disorder. Yeah. Yep. So we don't want to over broaden, broaden this to some extent. It, right. one, in, one interesting thing about this. So first, they did not find any, any causality, reverse causality here. Right. Right. So, so being depressed does not affect your level of physical activity. Right. Which, which is interesting. You would think it would, you know, more difficult. I know if yeah. I'm, if I'm feeling down, it's tougher for me to get to the gym. Uh, yeah. If I, had, if I was going to guess, I would, I would say, I would guess that, you know, people who are depressed are less likely to be physically active. So that is, that's an interesting finding. Also interesting is they so they study physical activity two ways. One is they surveyed the people and and you know how how often do you exercise per week or or what have you, and then um, by uh, what's called an accelerometer. So you know let's say some a a Fitbit or an Apple Watch or whatever something that's actually track you. Mm -hmm. So what's interesting is. They found there to, the relationship exists if it's uh, objective but not subjectively reported. Mm -hmm. Meaning, if you're wearing something and and you know it's 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 picking up physical activity, uh, then then that uh, is related to that's an correlated, on depression. right? That's correlated to the actual outcome of improved mood. Um, that's, this is a perfect example of what drives me nuts about so many of the other, um, epidemiological studies in nutrition, because it's, you know, so many things are, are just self-reported and self-reported diets are probably the worst, not 
because anyone's trying to report wrong information, but just by nature of what it is, it's, it's not always accurate. So this right here would say that the person who says, oh yeah, I did exercise more, um, but maybe they didn't as much as they thought they did, didn't end up having the mood enhancement like the person who did exercise because you have the objective data from their device saying they were more active and they did have improved mood. Exactly. Um, so it tells you right there that it's just really tough to base things off of um, someone's report of what they did. Exactly. Exactly. And that's, uh, you know, I said a related um, example of the benefits of, of wearing one of these watches or Fitbits that tracks things, everything from mm-hmm. that these days from sleep to activity to how long you stand. And uh, exactly. It's good. It's good. You know, but it can also with the right person become a little bit. Oh, yeah. Um, Obsessive. Obsessive. <laughs> That's the word. Yeah. Yeah, I gotcha. So I shut my stand off. I don't want to see that my stance notifications. Some days I sit a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and you just don't want to know. Yeah. Yeah. It's like it's like uh Big Brother telling you yep. get on your feet. So now we're gonna shift gears a little bit because uh, I want to talk a little bit about this um go from the study to a survey now and we, we need to kind of def- define this is this is a Gallup survey um, so it's all self-reported they're out they're out right. there just just asking people questions. so I guess that's the limitation definitely for causal uh, connections right. between exercise and mood or whatever but it to the extent that it supports some of this other you know what, clinical yeah. or epidemiological data, it, I, I think it is, is, it is helpful. Wouldn't you agree? Yes, I, I do. And that's not to say that all of these observational studies are, have incorrect data. Many of them, probably most of them, um, in the end, the, the outcome is on track with what, they, what they've gathered. Um, it's just, you always just want to be a little bit skeptical. Yeah, makes sense. And now, and I would say uh, for uh, all of the specifics uh, about what we're talking to, to you today, check out the show notes for sure. Uh, this Gallup study, I think, is interesting because it segments the, the population they survey by age. So they, they ask people in, in this four segments, 18 to 29, 30 to 44 year old, 45 to 64 year old, and then 65 plus. And they asked them both about their activity activity level or uh, more so their exercise level. So times a week do exercise in the prior week, no days, one to two days, three plus days. So from no exercise to a little bit exercise to fairly regular exercise. And then um, they correlated those responses with three different questions related to mood, let's say. First one was your your overall optimism. So it asks the question of, you know, what do you think your quality of life is going to be like five years from now? Yep. And I thought that was a really interesting way to measure it too, is, is, you know, measuring optimism by asking the question of how do you think you're going to feel five years in the future? It's just an interesting way to, to measure it. I think it's a good question. Yep, absolutely, absolutely, and obviously, you you would expect Gallup to at this point. <laughs> that's that's their that's their uh, yeah, core competency. Yeah, they got to ask good questions. Uh, so, and the results here were were um, pretty uh, kind of uh, interesting in that older 
people seem to get more psychological benefit, at least were more optimistic the more they exercised. Right. Yep. And that, that break point seems to be particularly on the, the 45 plus age point. Right. Yep. Extended pretty much, um, you know, almost, I don't want to say linearly, but, uh, you know, so that youngest uh, uh, cohort, 18 to 29 year old only got, uh, there was only a 6% difference between no exercise and, um, and, and uh, regular exercise. Right. And that grew to less for 30 to 44 and 23 for 45 to 64 and 32 percent for uh 65 plus yep yep so so pretty, it, it is interesting um that I, it's not related exercise and regular exercise in younger adults um i guess what it kind of says is that it just exercise means something different to people as you age so yeah. the exercise must be meaning something different to the younger adults. And as the, you get older, it becomes something that maybe is more correlated to mood and um, general well-being and optimism as you get older. Yeah, and I, I, you know, we're into purely, sub, uh, you know, uh, not subjective, but um, uh, the word escape, but uh, conjecture here. Yeah, right. But it could be that younger folks are generally healthier. Older folks, you know, are going mm-hmm. to have more ailments, but those folks who exercise regularly, you know, may be healthier, and that relates correlates right. to better, better right. mood. So, and either so, way, it's it's you know tells you that it is re- increased exercise, regardless of why it does it. You know, is related to um, improvements in in general mood. Yeah, absolutely. So, question they they ask specific about. Uh, depression uh, so and they and they asked I think it was as a doctor or nurse ever told you that you were depressed and then they 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 correlated that out and and somewhat of a similar pattern but not as strong a relationship age so mm-hmm. was, there was definitely uh, some difference uh, some positive difference between okay if you exercised more you had less uh, of uh, a a chance of being uh, diagnosed with depression in the past Mm -hmm. and again you saw that being a stronger relationship the older you get right yep which which again goes along with that and then the thing they 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 looked at was um that you're reporting of your feelings of, of daily stress by age and here Again, you got that correlation, again, not quite as strong as on optimism. Do I have that right? Correct, yes. Yep. A, little bit, a little bit more. Um, again, with the, with the big cutoff being 45 to 64, and I'm squarely within that age co- cohort, so I'm, yeah. going to, I'm going to keep exercising. <laughs> There's a good amount of reduction in stress among all age groups, which is, you know, good but definitely much higher as as people got older i think it was like 11 percent reduction in daily stress among exercisers younger than 30 they probably just don't have as much stress right <laughs> to extent to, to deal as, with as the, the 60 year old yeah. 
exactly. Or, or certainly someone um, of, of working age or parenting age or whatever. Yeah. So, and, and we have to note that there certainly could be confounding variables throughout this, for example. Absolutely, yep. Could be that people who exercise more and more including about what they eat so it's actually mm-hmm. their better diet is causing these but you know positive that's the problem impacts. with all of these studies is is finding out you know is it actually because people who exercise better are generally the ones who do blank which is why blank happens but it's still good to have a kind of general basis on the, the association of this kind of stuff and there is so much data in exercise and mood um, and it seems to be coming a little bit of a more popular um, topic recently um, and it's not just you know depression anxiety it's seen in PTSD and um, all schizophrenia all kinds of mental health disorders exactly so the bottom is get active we, we evolved as very active creatures, you know, uh, sedentary lifestyle is very much in, in conflict with our genetic makeup. I mean, our, our sedentary an- ancestors got eaten by beasts or they starved when they, when they, <laughs> because mm-hmm. they couldn't find, find food. So, um, so it, we're, we're, we're kind of uh, acting and uh, in concert with our with our genetic makeup when we're when we're active. Yep, and it's not easy, but the more you do it, generally, the more you do it. Yeah, well said. Thanks, Nicole. Thank you. Thanks again for listening. You can visit the doctorandad.com. That's spelled T H E D R A N D D A D dot com for show notes to any of our podcasts, as well as other useful info on extending health span. Now the legal disclaimer. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. And no doctor-patient relationship is formed. Use of this information in show notes is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not meant to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Listeners should not, should not disregard or delay taking medical advice or treatment for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their medical professional for any such conditions. We also want you to know that we take no funding from any product or service that may be mentioned on the Doctor and Dad podcast.